Well, very happy Easter to you and good morning. My name is Joel, if you're new to Emmanuel. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, um, especially the latter part of it since January. And we're closing today the, the whole book. Uh, we've been taking snapshots from it and we're going to do uh, a chunk from Matthew 28, the last chapter of the book, which speaks of the resurrection, Easter Sunday. And uh, what we want to do as we look at this today is ask the question, how, how does this make a difference? to me now in 21st century Brighton and Hove and Shoreham. Um, what, what is the real impact of this on my life in, in the here and now? That's, that's the question that uh, we want to give time to as we look at this story. So Matthew 28 verses 1 to 15. Let's have it read to us now. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I want us to look at three groups of people to help us on our way with this. The first group is the guards, these soldiers set to guard the tomb of Jesus, the crucified uh, Jesus. And the second group is the, the women who were coming to the tomb early in the morning on that first day of the week. And then finally, we'll give some time to the, the group of people who aren't in this part of the story, but they're referred to, the, the disciples, the brothers uh, that uh, Jesus refers to at the very last part of his, uh, his words to the, to the women. Let's start with these guards. There's something quite striking to consider. Given the fact that these, these men have had such an, an extraordinary encounter with a miraculous power, there was this lightning flash. There was this earthquake. Uh, there, there was this angelic appearance, which was stunning enough to them to cause them to, to, to look like they they were the corpses. They looked like they were dead. It's kind of a graphic image. It's, you know, outside the tomb, you've got these apparently dead bodies. Inside the tomb, uh, it's empty, and uh, there's a there's a there's a living uh, Jesus that seems to be at large. But having had this, this distressing 
traumatic experience that caused them to tremble and then just go sort of into some kind of trance or, or whatever. They are persuadable. They, they, they're winnable. And in fact, by the end of the story, they are the ones going around the city saying, oh, the disciples came and stole the body. That's really remarkable. It gives us an insight into the, the, the capacity for each human mind to perhaps be moved from one extreme to another. Apparently, from, from an experience of, of, of encountering the divine, the eternal supernatural God in majesty and power, an angel coming down from heaven, it in itself is not enough to ensure that an individual stays faithful to, has a heart change, and, 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 and kind of sticks with what they saw, sticks with the story. No, these guys, they go with the story that in the end earns the money. They're persuaded by the authorities to spread a rumor, a rumor which doesn't really make much sense if you consider it. It's, it's, it's a strange story. It's a poor story. It's a pretty poor kind of uh, throwaway press statement, if you like. If, if, you know, the marketing department, the communications department of the, the authority, you know, the Council of Jerusalem, might have done a better job in terms of the press statement because it doesn't hold together at all. To say, while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body, in itself doesn't add up, apart from the fact that these guards were, were trained to not sleep when on duty at the point of death. Any soldier, we know from other records, who, who would have... Did, who would have been responsible for such dereliction of duty would have themselves been executed by their unit. So, you know, the story doesn't really make much sense. These guys are going around, but yeah, I fell asleep and here I am to tell the story. You shouldn't be. But secondly, these soldiers are saying something that happened while they were asleep as if they saw it happen. You can't do that. As far as, far as I know, none of us you know, watching this have, have ever had the experience of being asleep while witnessing what was happening in the room around us while we were asleep. These guys are being given a story to pump out into Jerusalem, which simply doesn't add up at all, and yet they're going for it. They're prepared to accept and embrace a story which really they know isn't true. But I think that's, I think that's actually what we're like. I think this is another example of the Bible knowing us quite well. The Bible... The Bible presents a mirror to, to each one of us, showing our, our potential ability to deceive ourselves, our, our willingness to embrace a story, to embrace a version of events of, of reality which is less inconvenient, to embrace a version of the truth more varnished, more sort of filed down in ways that make us feel less pressured, less uncomfortable, more able to just get on with our lives in the way that we want to. And isn't that, isn't that the way we're wired? We, each of us wants to journey through life with the, the minimum amount of inconvenience, the minimum amount of, of, of friction and tension. We want to be able to pursue our agenda. We want to have comfort. We want to be sort of secure and safe. And the story, the idea that really something majestic and heavenly and and 
other than me, something as great as a real God came down, a God who is holy and pure, who would change my life from the inside out and transform it and turn it upside down so that I, I have to put everything in my life, my future, my hopes, my dreams, my past, my my everything about myself, my relationships, my resources. I have to say, because of this encounter with God, everything on my life has to start on a new foundation. Or I could take some money from the council and spread another rumor. So those moments that we we come to know, I suppose, whether whether we actually abide by the truth, whether it's the truth that shapes us, or whether it's just our own convenience that shapes us. And these guards, however extraordinary an, account, an encounter they've had, how, however overwhelmingly obvious it would seem that the, the, the nature of the evidence is of the reality of Jesus being alive and truly the Son of God, they'd rather take the money and ignore it and pretend it never happened. Just try and sort of just smooth over that part of that bumpy part of their lives that keeps bumping up again, perhaps in their consciousness and just go and smooth it over. No, we don't want to know. We don't want to ever look at it again because this, this whole Jesus thing is just, it's just too threatening. And we rather like Pilate washing his hands and walking away. We'll tend to do the same. We will try to sort of wash our hands over, try and smooth over, try and pretend because the convenience of, of another way of doing this, another, the, it, it's so appealing. The reality of being accepted by the authorities, not being any trouble to, to the authorities in Jerusalem. I don't want my, my captain of the guard. I don't want, I don't want the governor to be looking. I don't want my career prospects to be, I don't want to be put up on a trial or a court martial by the army and i certainly don't want to miss the opportunity for good money that's coming in through this arrangement i wonder how it might be with with us how would it be with you how would it how is it with you now the reason that people reject the message of jesus the person of jesus may have way less to do with whether or not they believe the evidence than it has with convenient. I think that happens all the time. I think people know in reality, of course, the only way to make sense of history, the only way to understand what happened in the ancient world is the resurrection. As, as sometimes secular historians have said, there is a resurrection-shaped hole that has been ripped into history. You can't explain <laughs> what happened through history except for the resurrection. If it didn't happen, we are in real trouble. It makes the most sense. And yet, we will make up theories. People have made up endless theories, it would seem. There's a few particularly popular ones. The idea that the disciples of Jesus kind of got carried away and ended up believing something and preaching something that they knew wasn't true. You might say, well, the, the soldiers are doing that. They go around declaring a story that they know isn't true. Ah, yeah, but they're the ones who, who are getting paid for it. The disciples who preached the resurrection did not get paid for it. They got killed for it. Literally, they got killed for it. They went around preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead, knowing that they would get killed, sometimes tortured and killed. 
these disciples all, majority of them, met their deaths for what they preached. Would they do that really if they knew that it wasn't true? <laughs> That's a big thing to believe. If we reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ as real history, we, we create massive problems that we, we, we can't ignore. But we do ignore. We, we just say, well, who knows? How can anybody know? La, 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 let's pretend it's not really important. But friends, it is of vital importance. It's the most important thing. Surely, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, it's the most important thing that ever happened. It is. It's got to be. I urge you. I, I, I urge you if you've never considered it for yourself. Why would you go through your life never actually investigating for yourself if Jesus rose from the dead? Why would you do such a, a foolish thing? Why would you be so dull? People go through life saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take God seriously if he reveals himself to me. If, if, if God would just reveal himself to me, then, then I'll take him seriously. Then I'll believe he's there. I wonder if these soldiers said things like that in their later lives. Well, maybe, maybe if God would just reveal himself to me, ignoring the fact that on Easter Sunday, he dramatically revealed himself to them, but they took the money and ran. God might be revealing himself to you now. God may have revealed himself to you, but the reality is not, is that it's not about whether he's transmitted information, it's whether you've received it. The, the issue isn't at his end. The issue is at our end. The issue isn't, does God reveal himself? He's revealing himself all the time. Really, the issue is that we, we don't want this revelation. It's so inconvenient. It's so threatening, and we're dull to it. So we kind of cover it over and pretend. Don't cover over. You can't ultimately anyway. One day you'll have to face him. That's the teaching of this book, that we all will have to face him anyway. If not in this life, then in the next take Easter seriously and, and let's let's look at let's look at uh, these guards in comparison to the women so we're told that that Mary and the other Mary is probably Jesus mother uh, are at the tomb Matthew describes this this early stage of the day where these two ladies come and and the fear that grips the guards enough to render them corpses it would seem like like corpses like they're dead these women are also exposed to the same angel. But in their case, the fear that they experience is different. They're still, it's still a powerfully emotional experience. They are still dramatically upset by meeting this angel who looks like lightning, Matthew says. You try and imagine what that means causing an earthquake and this is a this is an imposing personality and mary and mary are shocked for sure because the first thing the angel says as as angels tend to say in the bible when they show up generally the first thing an angel says is don't be afraid <laughs> which is a clue the fact that they feel the need to say it every time they meet somebody is because generally if you meet an angel usually you're tempted to be afraid because they are shocking personalities they at least at least most of the time. Sometimes they're hard to tell in the Bible, but, but most of the time they come in with a dramatic, uh, Im impressive <laughs> uh, visual and oral display going on. Earthquake, lightning. It's shocking. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, does that stop the women from having any fear at all? 
No, it's interesting to notice it. Look down at verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with, look at this, fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Now, this is a really fascinating phrase. And it's, it's actually the kind of language that the Bible strangely repeats from cover to cover. At various points, we get this peculiar combination of emotions expressed that you would expect to be mutually exclusive. How can you be filled with fear and great joy at the same time? These things don't coexist naturally. In, in yeah, our ordinary living experience, even even some of the heightened emotions that we experience through, I don't know, visits to a special location or watching a, 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 a truly outstanding movie or reading a, a great piece of literature or, or whatever, art and music and, and relationships and, and whatever experiences that we may have, usually you choose between the fear and the joy. The Bible often, it would seem, suggests an alternative which is a combination of the two where a person is filled with fear and great joy the the guards they were filled with fear they trembled and became as dead men that's fear and these were guards these were roman guards they were probably the sort of people who was hard to scare they were paid to scare other people they're good at being scary and they've seen some bloodshed. They've seen some crucifixions. They've seen some, some families butchered, probably. They've probably done it themselves. They were, not, they were not unused to startling vision, startling images, things that would have shocked you and I and caused us to recoil. These soldiers went in where angels fear to tread, you might think. And yet when they meet this heavenly being, they become as though they're dead. They are absolutely turned over with fear. These women... They meet the same angel and they're filled with fear and great joy. This is important. We, we need to understand that there's different kinds of fear described in the Bible. Our experience of, of relationship to God will be characterized if we know him, if we meet him truly by some degree of fear. But it can be a fear that repels us. But it can also be a fear that draws us. I suppose... An analogy might be magnetic forces. One side of a magnet pushes away, the other side sucks in. You, you have an encounter with God, you may be, in fact, repulsed by it. Happened in the, the first stages of the Bible story where the human race, represented by the one man and the one woman in the garden, turned away from God, set themselves up as God, replaced God, cut themselves from him, divorced from him, declared war on him. We did that. That is our story. That's the, that's the story of the human race as described at the very start of the Bible. Our representatives, first ancestors, our story is, is that we've, we've cut ourselves off from him. The next thing that happens in the story, God comes into the garden, Genesis chapter 3, and it says that the man and the woman hid from them, from him, because they were afraid. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. They hid from him because they were afraid. 
your fear of God can make you hide from him. And there's plenty of examples of that in the Bible. But there's also these strange places in the Bible where it talks in a slightly different way. I'll just give you one example in Proverbs chapter 28. Blessed or happy, happy is the one who fears the Lord always. Happy is the one who fears the Lord always. There you go again, that combination of emotion. Further back in the Old Testament is the story of Nehemiah. And just one line in one of his prayers, this is just one example again amongst many that we could give. I just use this one less often in preaching, but it's helpful to show that there are many examples where he prays to God speaking of your servants who delight to fear your name, who delight to fear your name. How can these things go together? In the Bible, they they frequently do because to know God truly, truly to understand and to to begin to engage with him, find him, experience him, and know him in relationship, to know him as a person, to know this this person of God or this this Father, Son, and Spirit, persons, to be drawn into this relationship is to learn to fear and to rejoice at the same time. To learn to be overwhelmed with his majesty and yet feel the invitation to come closer. In fact, literally they come closer to Jesus. They, they, they don't back away as they're traveling. They see him and he says they run and they cling to his feet. Which is a peculiar image perhaps for us, but at least it suggests friendship, affection, intimacy. They, they trust they know they're drawn to him. They're so happy to see this magnificent one. If the angel ought to cause soldiers to tremble, think of the majesty of this one. And yet he draws us in. He's, he, he's come amongst us as one of us. And if the angel has majesty, surely Jesus has greater majesty. And yet he, he's, he's approachable. He's accessible. He's, he's both to be feared and delighted in at the same time. And there's this kind of mystery here. It's hard to understand. In, in the Narnia stories, you, you might know the story of uh, the children after Aslan has been killed at the stone table and then rises from the dead. It's the same. It's the Easter story told in a different way. But it, it, in the story, one of the girls, Lucy, about her, it, it's, it's said about her, when, when she, start, she sees Aslan, she runs to him. They start dancing together. By, by the stone table they start enjoying fun together and she said she she could never tell whether it was like dancing with a thunderstorm or with a kitten she couldn't tell she, she could never quite decide and i think that's the writer of those books trying to help us to to get closer to this mystery that this person is magnificent in his in in wonder in in awe in majesty and yet beckons us, draws us to know more of him, to, to enjoy him, to feel somehow strangely at home with him, despite all that would terrify us about him. This is, we're, this is how we begin to see something of who he really is. And he says, don't be afraid. And it's a good phrase for us. Don't be afraid. He's got authority to say that. Jesus has, in this story, completed his victory. 
Jesus has overcome all of his enemies. Even the way Matthew describes the scene is quite interesting. You've got these guards who look like they're dead. You've got this big rock that's been moved out of the way, and you've got this angel literally sitting on it. I love that image of the angel just sitting down like a huge soldier at the end of a battle. Just It looks a bit like a siege. It looks like a siege has happened, like a fortress has been taken, this huge boulder that's been moved. I think that's the kind of image we were supposed to see here. It's like there's a victory has happened, a siege, a great fortress, a great mighty, impregnable wall surrounding a citadel, just an utterly irremovable force. This, this, who could ever break in to the city of death? And yet here's this angel just sitting down afterwards, you know, taking his sandals off and relaxing after the battle. And here are these, these corpses on the floor. <laughs> these, these guardians of death have been rounded up. They're just lying down, insensible. And this tomb, come and have a look, the angel says. Come, look inside. We almost kind of say, look what we've done. Look what we did to the city. Maybe you've seen photographs of... Hitler's bunker after the Second World War and Russian soldiers just peering in, just looking in. Look, look what we took. Look what we took today. These angels, this angel here, rejoicing in this cosmic victory, the greatest fortress that could ever be taken. No one could ever take it. Jesus took it. <laughs> Jesus took it. He's just calmly walking around, the angel sitting on the, on the side. The battle has been won. The siege is done. Victory is complete. Jesus says, don't be afraid anymore. That's the message of Easter. Don't be afraid. The greatest enemy that you could ever face is taken out. All the enemies we face in this life, including the ones you face this week, even the ones you're facing right now, the things that are troubling you, perhaps you're agonizing over, perhaps you brought them into the meeting with you today. Do you understand that the greatest enemies you face are still nothing compared to the greatest enemy? And that enemy was defeated on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Jesus has won such an utter, complete, comprehensive, exhaustive victory that we do well to live in the good of his instruction. Don't be afraid. Don't live there. Don't live as if Easter Sunday never happened. Don't live contained by the fears that are not becoming to you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you can walk with the flame of liberty that these women were from this point on doubtless energized by to the end of their lives on this earth because they, they understood the implication. I don't have to be afraid. He's won. Look, look, he's won. He's overcome. He broke into the impregnable tower and took it for us. So we're free. And then he says, tell my brothers. I love that language. Tell my brothers. Don't you find that a staggering word to use? These disciples, so-called, who scattered, went their separate ways, denied him three times in the case of the most vocal. These apparent losers, failures, who promised so much and delivered so little claimed such devotion and proved so faithless and Jesus calls them brothers 
Go tell my brothers, he says. Not the word I would use. It's not. Jesus says, brothers, my brothers. Do you know this, Jesus? The, the point of your life you're most ashamed of, the things about yourself which you find most disappointing. And he knows them so well. He knows them better than you do. When you try to cover up, say, no, 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 it's not like that. I had a good reason. I have a good excuse. I can explain. No, let me. Jesus knows always more than we do. He knows our hearts. The Bible says he knew what's in the hearts of men. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows your inclinations. He knows that in the end, you have to just stop talking. Because all of your claims about yourself, all of your protestations of innocence, and, and meaning well, and it wasn't my fault, and it's their fault. All of that is nothing, is rendered pointless, it's dust before God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And the best place to get to is the point of stopping the defense of self, seeing the futility of it, and understanding that we're just beggars and just need mercy finding at that point he calls us brothers <laughs> brothers brothers do you see that about yourself sisters do you understand this this is his way with us this is his undeserved way the bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts god speaks that way in the book of isaiah my thoughts are not your thoughts says the lord neither are my ways your ways for as, the high as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. We don't build to his scale. We don't understand his superabundance of goodness and kindness and undeserved favor. It's a gift. It's great. We come to God on the basis of what he has done for us. He calls us his own. He calls us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The Bible says so. <laughs> Book of Hebrews. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. Oh man, the things that he should be ashamed of in my life. The things that ought to cause him to recoil in horror. But he comes and says, brother, where's my brother gone? Bring my brother. I'm going to go catch up. And I love the way just finally the instruction go to Galilee I'm going to meet you at Galilee why is that important it's going back to the beginning that's what it is let's go back to Galilee boys I'll meet you in Galilee it's where he met them where they met for the first time where it all started where they got on this journey in the first place where they caught his attention and he caught their attention and they got excited about Jesus and they joined the, 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 the movement they got inspired by him and then it got tricky and it got harder. And then they, they found it got more and more, more and more frightening. And then they, they realized they couldn't cope with the, the, the journey he was going on. They weren't up for it. And they saw themselves for what they really were, how rotten and frightened and cowardly they were. And it ended with such a horror show. And that's the end. That's the story. That's it. That's the story of my life. Jesus says, I'm going to meet you at Galilee. That's not the story of your life. Let's start all over again. Look at, the, look at the very first verse of this passage. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. That means something. 
What does Easter Sunday mean? It means a lot of things. One thing for sure it means is you can start again. You can start again. Jesus is making all things new. Isn't that the longing in your heart sometimes? Oh, if only I could start again. Some of us, we go through life with such regret. Maybe there are all kinds of things in your life. Marriages, families, children, parents, jobs, career prospects, ambitions, grades. <laughs> These things we longed for, that we, we craved, even things we built and tried to build, and they didn't come as, they looked good and then it went wrong. And you can be shaped by regret, shaped by a sad story. You can let it become your shape. You can let it become the grumble of your life. You can make it the main theme of your life. It was taken away, or I blew it, or that's it, it's all over, I'm finished. And Jesus comes to you today on Easter Sunday and says, let, let me tell you, you have not even started. You have no idea. You have no idea. It's the, it is the first day of the week. It is a new creation. It is never too late. I am willing to start with you. Start with you all over. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to receive a new beginning with Jesus? You must. You must trust him. You must turn to him. You must obey him. But you can know for sure. He is, he is full of ambition. He's full of excitement. He's full of plans. Trust him. Trust him today. Maybe for the first time. Don't be shaped by regret. Be shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be shaped by his power, his indestructible life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what this means to us. The resurrection didn't happen inside our small lives. The resurrection shakes our lives. It brings us into a different world, a different scale. We have to change all of our ideas because the glorious God, the holy God, breaks in, transforms, gives hope, fresh hope. We pray that our lives, even as a church and even for people across this city who don't know Jesus, people across these meetings who are watching this video who don't yet know Jesus, I pray that you would break in with hope into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.